Welcome to First Baptist Church in Belton. We are glad you found us. We seek to know Jesus intimately, serve Jesus passionately, and share Jesus globally together. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's message. Father, we were there. We were there when the nails were driven through his hands and feet. We were there. Not as observers and bystanders, but as participants. Please forgive us and show us the way. Amen. If you have your Bibles this morning, we'll be looking at the 14th, excuse me, the 12th chapter of the book of Hebrews. The first four verses. Over the course of our lives, Donna and I have... Baptist servants have had the opportunity to travel a great deal. By the way, Donna is in the choir. You want to wave at him? That's who I've been with for the last 48 years. And uh, she is a patient woman, let's just say that. But over the course of our lives, we travel a lot. And one of the things we try to do when we go to different places is we try to buy a cross in that country. Typically, we go to the little native tourist stands and try to find something that a local artisan has put together for a cross. Now, if it says made in China on the back, we don't buy that one unless we're in China. But, and we haven't been to China yet. So, we do buy those crosses. Some are hand-carved. Some have the name of Jesus on it. Some have the name of the country on it. Some have the gospel story carved into it. Some are just plain crosses. But each one tells the story. Now, whether the creator of that cross tells the story, the creator of the universe always tells the story with the cross. We see crosses in a lot of places. They are witnesses of our faith. We see them in our churches and on our churches. We see them used as decorations. Sometimes they're jewelry to be hung around our necks. Some people even get tattoos of the cross. And I can't even imagine where the places those might all be. I really don't want to do that. I'll be honest with you, I don't get tattoos. I mean, if you want to get one, that's fine. But... uh One, I don't like needles that much, and I know it's a moral failing of mine not to understand the nature of tattooing, but it's just not me. When you think about the cross, in Jesus' day, it was the most cruel, vicious punishment that could be handed out. It was a way that those societies chose to dispose of the people who they judged guilty of a capital crime. It was intended to be so horrendous that it would be a deterrent to everyone who watched and saw. It was designed to cause the most pain for the longest period of time before the horror of death was experienced, sometimes taking as long as three days before the crucified one died. Death came from exhaustion. In the process of crucifixion, no mortal wounds were issued to those who were receiving that punishment. Nails were driven in the wrist, which are very sensitive pain centers, and the ankles, which also are very sensitive pain centers. So there was excruciating pain. 
and then they were hung on the cross. Death came when the body was so exhausted it could no longer use its legs to push up simply to take air in. And literally, the life was squeezed out of the one who was crucified. That's why when the, with the, the thieves on the cross, they broke their legs because they could no longer then support themselves. With Jesus, it was obvious he was already dead, but just to make sure, they stuck the spear in his side. The process, they carried the cross up the hill to Golgotha. They were nailed to the cross. And then the cross was seated and stood. The victims were stripped. They were stripped not only of their clothes, but they were also stripped of their dignity and everything about them. Everything about them physically, emotionally, personally was stripped away. The idea was that their lives, their character, their person, everything was destroyed by the cross. That's why the authorities, the Jewish authorities kept taking Jesus back to Pontius Pilate. They wanted him crucified. Now the Jewish way of capital uh, punishment was stoning. They wrapped a person up, put them in a semi-hole and threw rocks at them until they were dead. But they wanted Jesus destroyed. Not just killed, but destroyed. In that day, the cross was not a triviality. It was not a decoration. I have an idea if the first century Christians came to our world today and saw all the crosses around, they would be shocked by what our society has done with the cross. But for us, it is a reminder. It's a reminder in our houses, in our churches, on our jewelry for the one who died for us and in whom we trust. But why would God do that? He was the creator of the universe. Why would God in Christ Jesus go through the cross? As I learned of the opportunity to preach today, I began to look through passages on the cross. And one that really struck me in a way that it had not struck me before is Hebrews chapter 12, beginning verses 1 and going through verse 4. I didn't take the usual approach to this passage But there were words that jumped out to me. It reads this way. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, And sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood. I'll confess that over the last several weeks I have been captured by this passage. Not the usual parts, but the phrase that haunted me over these weeks was a compilation of one phrase in there that said, for the joy, the cross. And it struck me, for the joy, the cross, as horrible as the cross was, where was the joy in that? Let's look closer this morning. 
You see, to begin with, it all started with sin. In the beginning, in chapter 12, the writer of Hebrews says that sin so easily entangles us. It speaks of Jesus who endured opposition of sinful men. Sin was at the heart of all of it. You see, in creation, God made a wonderful world. He he created a wonderful universe, and he did it for his pleasure and his joy, and he wanted to share it someone with someone, so he created humankind. Creation was good. God pronounced it good. That's what Genesis 1 is all about. And God said, it is good, and it was. And the culmination of that creation was the Garden of Eden. And there he created Adam and Eve where he could go and walk in the garden with them and and they could fellowship and have relationship and, and they would always be together. But that perfect time and place, that peace was shattered, fractured by sin. Oh, I know we talk a lot about sins at times, although not nearly as much as we used to, but we talk about sins usually in the lives of other people because, of course, we don't do that. But sin, what the writer of Hebrews is talking about is Adam and Eve kind of sin. You see, their sin was the rebellion in their hearts when they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, I know a lot of people portray that as an apple tree, which really gives apples a bad name. It wasn't an apple. It was the knowledge of good and evil. Because Adam and Eve were told that if they would eat of that tree, if they would eat of that fruit, they would know everything God knew. They could be their own gods. They could choose their own way. They could make their own path. They could be masters of their fate. They were created in the image of God, but what they wanted to do was create God in their image. And they wanted to rule Themselves. Did you ever wonder why in the New Testament, as you read about Jesus and his opposition to the Pharisees, did you ever wonder why he was so hard on them? After all, they were the religious people of the day. They were the leaders of Jewish society and Jewish religion. But I think Jesus was hard on them because of their self-righteousness. He was hard on them because of the arrogance with which they lived. They were the representatives of God, and and they took pride in being right all the time. They They were better. They were in control. As a matter of fact, they had distilled God down into Old Testament law, which is about 618 prescriptions of how you ought to live, and they religiously lived those. But that became the box that they had God in, and they were in control, and God was at their beck and call It was not the other way around. The writer of Hebrews tells us that sin easily entangles us. It gets in the way. It takes our eyes off of Jesus. He said to those folks who were reading this that they had not resisted to the point of shedding of blood. And the simple truth is we are separated from God by sin. And the only way that that could be rectified was with the death on the cross. But here's the kicker. God knew all that from the beginning. Yet still he created us. And still he loves us. We we live in a society that by and large has forgotten what sin is. 
We've made humankind the great arbiter of right and wrong. Every morning I read an article by Jim Dennison, a friend of ours who pastored at Park Cities and First Midland and a lot of other places, called The Daily Article. Uh, It's certainly worth your time, by the way. But Dennison wrote this week about Don Lemon, a CNN anchor who commented this week about the change in the, or not the change, but the statement that the Vatican made that it still did not recognize as uh, a true marriage anything but between a man and a woman. Lemon was very critical of that. Now, last year he made headlines when he said that, uh, he said Jesus was not perfect when he was here on earth. And he continued with this attack on the Vatican. In an interview last Monday, he said that churches need to re-examine themselves and their teachings because it is not what God is about. God is not about hindering people or even judging people. Hope he doesn't read Matthew 25, but that's another sermon. <laughs> Lemon's belief is that he can dictate his theology and make it that of the Roman Catholic Church. His personal beliefs are the truth, and he knows what God wants. The amazing thing is, if you were to put that out for a vote in the U.S., Yes, Lord? For those of you on TV, we just had an alarm of some kind go off. Amber alert. Okay. We'll we'll not announce that. I'm more concerned about the silver alerts because I think one of these days I'm going to drive down the road and there my name's going to be. Have to steal a car to get away. But our society has has so defined sin so that it reflects our culture and not the teachings of Scripture. Right and wrong are not biblical truth anymore. It's what we want it to be, what I want it to be. In our culture, everything is relative. Right and wrong is what I say is right and wrong, and that's in every area of life. Let me give you a few examples. Sexual ethics, for example, they're not based on revealed Scripture but on what I want them to be. Lyrics of songs are what changes society rather than the teachings of our God and Savior. The actions of the lifestyles of the rich and famous are what becomes the standard to which we live. Those of wealth and fame are deified. I'll be honest with you, every time I read about a new starlet coming out and making broad pronouncements politically and theologically, I begin to wonder, what in the world is this society coming to? It's true, though. That's what our world deifies. Sinful living is glamorized. It's the life that people seek. And we value what we have and not whose we are. I was shocked in this last election cycle with a lot of the verbiage that went on on both sides, quite honestly. When Christian faith was equated with who you vote for. There was nearly half of our society that said, if you vote for a Republican, you're not a Christian. And the other half said, if you vote for a Democrat, you're not a Christian. You see, it's all about us. What we think. What we believe. And we're more concerned about the opinions of Megan and Harry than we are about what God would teach us. Truth is what I say it is. 
Sin means I don't agree with you. Sin is rebellion against God. And our society has turned its back on that. But the truth is it still easily entangles us. Not only our society, and we can point fingers outside of ourselves all all day long, but sin is still within us too. We still are sinners. We still fall short of the glory of God. We, We still miss the mark. We still think too highly of ourselves. But the truth is sin and the sins that come from that are what demanded the need for the cross. And so God himself in Christ Jesus died on that cross. But as horrible as the cross was and as sinful as we are, why did Jesus do it? And for heaven's sakes, what does joy have to do with any of that? The truth is, for the joy, Jesus went to the cross. That haunts me. That makes me want to sit up and take notice and say, Why? How could this happen? The text says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy, the cross. Scripture is full of amazing words. These five words continue to amaze me. You see, starting with the sin of Adam and Eve, God began to call the world back to himself. He began to redeem it. He kicked them out of the Garden of Eden. There were conditions that that happened along the way. But from that moment on, God began to work to call his world back to him. There were times when he got fed up. And he's a lot more patient than I would have been. I mean, I'm thanking God that I'm not God. It's a tough job. At one point, God got so angry, he decided he'd just destroy the whole thing. But Noah found faith in the eyes of God, found favor. And God saved the world. I mean, he could have destroyed it and started all over. Listen, if he can create an army out of a valley of dry bones, he can revive a Baptist church and create all over again. That's our God. That's who he is. But rather than give up on it, he sought to redeem it. He called it back to himself, knowing what it would cost, knowing the high price there would be. That's the big picture. But here's the little picture. The little picture is my picture. My rebellion. That in the midst of my sin, He chose to redeem me. To buy me back out of my sin. To buy me back out of my rebellion. For the joy set before Him, He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God to intercede and to advocate for me, for you. That's who our God is. That's what He does. I often feel like Isaac Watts must have felt when he wrote the hymn at the cross. We have sanitized it a bit. 
Today it sings, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would He devote that sacred head for sinners such as I? When Watts wrote that, the last verse, line of that stanza said, Would He devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? When you think about who we are in relationship to the Creator of the universe, That gives us a more accurate picture, quite honestly. But that amazing God of ours looked down and saw us and decided to redeem us. And the scripture says that God in Christ Jesus took delight in redeeming us from ourselves and from our sin. That's what the cross is about. It's the joy of giving us life. It's it's the joy of saving us from our sins, of redeeming us. Jesus went to the cross for us. For all of us are sinners. All of us. And there's not big sinners and little sinners. Usually when we try those categories, we think big sinners are those people out there, and the little sins are what I do. The truth, folks, is sin is sin. That's who we are. That's how we live. When I was growing up, we thought the big sinners were the Methodist. (laughs) Because they didn't have Sunday night church. They didn't have Wednesday night church. And they danced in the basement. We thought, I mean, I grew up in happy Texas, so, you know, there's not a lot of, a lot of sin and available, but we managed to, to accomplish it, but. We used to pray for the Methodists. Little did we know the Church of Christ were across the street praying for us while we were praying for the Methodists. Go figure. But the truth is sin is sin and we're all guilty. That's who we are. That's what we are about. But God in Christ Jesus took absolute delight in going to suffer on the cross to save us and to bring us to His joy. That is the most amazing thing about the Gospels. Several years ago, the Gaither vocal band sang a song that I fell in love with, although we don't sing it uh, in, in congregations much. It's called, That's When the Angels Rejoice. It's based on Luke 15.10 where it says, In the same way I tell you there was, is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, they go through a whole litany of things. You know, was it when the Yankees won the World Series or Baylor won a football game? Well, no, that's a different story. Uh, or, you know, was it when wars were won or when, when, when successes were done or when political elections were done? Or No, what makes God joyful and what makes his angels dance is the redemption of one of us because he loves us that much. It brings him joy. And to die on the cross for him was joy. Wow. I'm shocked by that. I'm humbled by that. And I rejoice in that. So how does it work then? This thing called salvation. That's the most amazing part about it. God gave it to us freely. And it cost us nothing 
but it cost us everything. God's free gift is to anyone who will believe in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, this not of works, not of yourselves, for it's a gift of God, not of works so that no one can boast. We no longer have to be weary and lose heart. We have life in Christ. We have been delivered so we don't get weary and lose heart. For we live because there is one at the right hand of the Father ensuring all of, all, all of that for us. He loves us that much. We are forgiven. We have hope. We have purpose. We have meaning in life. We find life now and forever. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. It's God's gift to us. And he gives it to us simply for the asking. But it is not free. It cost our Savior his life. And then he calls us to take up our crosses and to follow him. To be living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to him. It comes when we receive the gift of God into our lives and and placing our hands in the hands of the Father. Placing our lives in his hands so that we discover what life is about. It's a matter of faith and trust. As we go through the next week or two thinking toward the crucifixion of Jesus, one of the things we will see is the last words that Jesus spoke from the cross. The last one he spoke was, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That's the faith he requires. That we put aside those sinful natures and we literally lay our lives on the table before the Father. And they are his because he has given his life for us. And now he is interceding for us and he takes joy in that joy. The joy that we can take up our crosses and follow him. I love many of the events on the Christian calendar. I love Advent. I love the joy of that. But more than that, I love Easter. For it's a celebration of eternal life that we have in Christ. But here's the deal. Before we can celebrate Easter, we've got to go to the cross. And we find our lives there. It's hard for us to see the sacrifice that the Savior made for us. We know we don't deserve it. We feel like worms in the face of God. But he doesn't see us that way. He sees us as worthy of his love. He took joy in redeeming us. And we find our lives in him. The question is, have you found that life in him? May we pray. 
Father, I thank you for this today. Oh, Lord, we're, we're so undeserving. But we thank you that you loved us. That when you see us, you, you don't see evil, hard people. But you see children worthy of redemption. Father, we know the only thing that makes us worthy is the blood of Jesus. And Lord, I, I thank you that for the joy, you and Christ Jesus went to the cross to die for us. To shed blood, to give life so that we could find life. Father, forgive us when we turn our backs on you. Father, forgive us when we do it our way and not your way. Forgive us when we don't lay our lives on that altar for you because you laid your life on the altar for us. Help us to commit our spirits to you today, Lord. Guide us in this season as we remember. In Jesus' name, amen. In just a moment, we're going to stand to sing stanzas of invitation. The invitation is this this morning. If you're here today and you've never begun that journey with Jesus Christ, he died for you, and this is your opportunity. And say, well, preacher, I don't understand all of that. I don't either, and I've been doing this a long time. The truth is, none of us understand it all. But it's ours for the asking, and then we learn. Could be the hearers. You're, you're here today as a Christian and you realize that you need to recommit to being the person God wants you to be. I hope all of us do that. If that needs to be a public decision, Matt's here, other staff members are here. If you need a church home to belong to, a group of believers that share the joy of having the sacrificed, the, the crucified Christ for us and the risen Lord for us. If you need a church to belong to like that, you come and be a part of us. Whatever God would lead you to do, we want you to do that. We're going to stand, we're going to sing. As God leads you, you come. Thank you for listening. Please feel free to call the church at 254-939-0705 if you need prayer or if you need to talk with someone. We're here to listen, help, and encourage.